0: Psalm number 25. Well, you may not know it, but there are 22 verses in Psalm 25, and each of those 22 verses are ordered in the form of an acrostic in the Hebrew Bible. So each line from the first verse All the way to the last verse, it begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's an acrostic. And uh, there's some discussion uh, about why the Hebrews uh, arrange certain psalms this way. In fact, we have no less than nine different psalms that are arranged in acrostic form. Two of them we've looked at already, Psalm 9 and 10. Now you have Psalm 25, Psalm 34, Psalm 37, 111, 112, 119, and 145 are all arranged in a similar fashion. Obviously, Psalms 9 and 10 make up the full Hebrew alphabet. And the curious thing is, is for some reason, the... uh, even though they all begin with a different character or letter of the Hebrew alphabet, that's the verses on the line, uh, some of the characters or some of the alphabet is just jumbled around ever so slightly, and there's a lot of theories about why that is. I don't have time to talk about that this morning. But there is several reasons why God would arrange certain parts of his word in this way. So if it was in our modern English alphabet, uh, the first verse of Psalm number 25 would begin with the letter A, and the second verse would begin with the letter B, and the third verse, the letter C, all the way until the letter Z. And I want to talk to you about this this morning, by way of introduction, why this is significant and what this means in with regard to Psalm 25. But before I do that. I want you to notice several key verses which clue us in as to why this psalm is arranged in an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. Notice verses 4 and 5. Now, you Bible students and scholars, if you can figure out the common theme with uh, several of these verses that I'm going to read, be looking for a common thread that weaves everything together, beginning in verses 4 and 5. He said, make me to know your." your ways, O Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long and jump down there to verses number eight and nine good and upright is the lord therefore he instructs sinners in the way he leads the humble in what is right he teaches the humble his way also notice verse number 12 with me he said who is the man who fears the lord him will he instruct in the way that he should choose now There are at least three different reasons why the Hebrew alphabet would have been figured into psalm number 25 And one of the reasons is that the Hebrews arranged this 25th psalm To each line begins with a different letter of their alphabet And they did that in order to teach children They were doing two things They were teaching children the alphabet And they were also teaching children about the Lord. And they use an acrostic pattern to teach the young people of Israel a little something about God. And it was helpful because very often if you're learning uh, new material, wouldn't you know that it helps to have some kind of a structure, something that jogs your mind? You ever heard of a mnemonic device? Anybody ever been involved with lots of memorization? Anybody at all memorized large portions of the Bible or large other things? Maybe you had a big uh, you know, exam when you were in college and you had to memorize a lot of material. Well, there's something called a mnemonic device. And what a mnemonic device that's just a fancy way of saying something that jogs your memory. There's something that jogs your memory. And uh, this psalm was arranged from uh, with the Hebrew alphabet in order to help the young people and the older folks, too, <laughs> uh, jog their memory for exactly what the psalm was teaching. You know, it was very common in the ancient day. They didn't have iPhones, and they didn't have books, and they didn't have, at least not books like what we have. Everything had to be written out by hand. And so it was important that the young people and the people of Israel would memorize large portions of of the Bible because they didn't have access to uh, a Bible like what you folks do to be able to bring one to church every Sunday and keep on your uh, nightstand or your coffee table. But nevertheless, here is the reason why I believe, and others like me, we believe that the 25th Psalm, you take the uh, theme of in Israel of the people using the alphabet to plug into the Psalms in order to help people to memorize it, and there also was a poetic element of it as well. But the main reason why they uh, would do what they did was for teaching, and that element is reinforced with what did you find in our verses? What was the common theme? He said, Teaching and instruction, teaching and instruction the title of the message this morning is the christian life from a to z the christian life from a to z by the jewish people arranging the 25th psalm beginning with a different letter on each line what they were saying was this psalm it covers all the bases Everything that we need to know from A to Z about the Christian life or about living for God, that's all contained uh, within the 25th Psalm. Psalm 25 is a schoolbook lesson on how to live for God and be blessed by Him. As we gather in God's schoolhouse called the local church, let us take the textbook of the Bible. And learn from our master teacher through King David concerning how to live effectively in Christ. During our study of this great portion of God's word, may we come to God seeking his teaching grace in our lives. There are at least four major lessons to learn from our master teacher in the 25th Psalm. And this is our four main points this morning They come to us in the form of various lessons that the master teacher is seeking to teach us. Now, I couldn't help myself with school starting. And that calls for a sip of tea. But the young people need to be taught, and the older folks need to be taught too, don't they? Amen. And God is faithful to teach us. I have four basic points this morning. Roman numeral number one, the lesson on perseverance. Roman numeral number two, the lesson on teachability. Roman numeral number three, the lesson on mercy and justice. And Roman numeral number four, the lesson on how to receive God's blessings. I'll say those again. Roman numeral number one, the lesson on perseverance. Number two, on teachability. Number three, on mercy and justice. And number four, on receiving the blessings of God. Number one, notice how this great psalm begins. He said, "'To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. "'O my God, in you I trust. "'Let me not be put to shame.'" Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. The English Standard Version translates that last part of the verse. Very important for us to see that the way in which this psalm begins is David prays to God that he would not be put to shame. That he would not be put to shame. In fact... Three times in verses 1 through 3, the word shame is mentioned in one form or another. Now, in our modern vernacular, in uh, contemporary English language, I want to read you the uh, New Oxford Dictionary definition for the word shame. And I want to tell you, uh, I want to contrast how we view the word shame and what the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew word for shame actually means, because they're two completely different things. And what we'll do, if we're not careful, is when we see the word shame, we'll begin to start reading our 21st century english definition into that and what i want to do is give you our definition and contrast it with what the hebrew bible tells us new oxford dictionary defines the word shame as following quote a painful feeling of humiliation or distress caused by the consciousness of wrong or foolish behavior end quote Now, this is important. This is a common definition of shame. It deals with feelings of humiliation. Somebody has said something about you and you feel shame or ashamed. And uh, that's important. And actually, that definition uh, for the word shame appears in other parts of the Bible. Do you remember what Jesus said? If any man deny me in the presence of the Father, I shall deny him in my Father's presence. The idea there is shame. But I want to read you the uh, English or the Hebrew understanding how the Jewish people defined the word shame. "Quote the unique biblical idea is that of being let down or disappointed, or of having trusted in something that in the end proves unworthy of our trust." Isn't that fascinating? In quote, by the way. The, the better word to define or describe the Hebrew word for shame is the word disappointment. And this is fascinating and it's also very profound because David opens a 25th psalm with the prayer that God would not disappoint him. Has anybody ever felt like God disappointed him? It's the wave, you know, uh, two hands even. We've all felt like God has disappointed us from time to time. And one of the great powerful and profound teachings of the 25th Psalm is that they who hope in the Lord shall never be put to shame. Isn't that wonderful? God never disappoints us. And these verses all mean that those who have staked their all on God will not be abandoned by him in the end. This is why David uses shame in this psalm. David prays, Lord, don't disappoint me. I've stacked all my chips on you. I've hedged all my bets on you and you alone, Lord. And uh, Lord, I don't have anywhere else to turn. You remember uh, one of the common... Uh, prayers in the ancient world was the people would call on all these multiplicity of gods. They pray to this God, pray to that God, pray to those, you know, I'll even pray to your God and ask him to help and deliver me. And at the end of the day, whichever one comes to my rescue, well, that's the one I'll give praise to. But see, the Jewish people weren't like that. They had one and they had one God only, and that's all they were allowed to have. And so when they put their trust in him, it was important for them to know that he he would not disappoint them and that is one of the great occasions for which we have this 25th psalm now does david have warrant is the fear of david that god would disappoint him is that real or is david just sort of uh, is he suffering from an illusion is david dealing with paranoia or some other thing uh, i think david had a very good reason to believe or a good reason to be concerned that god would not disappoint him For two reasons. There are at least two reasons why David is concerned about God disappointing him. Number one, he was surrounded by enemies. He was surrounded by enemies. Look at verse 2, verse 15, and verse 19. In verse 2 he said, Oh my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt Over me. And then he said in verse number 15, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. You've got a net that's been laid for you by your enemies, David says. Notice in verse number 19, consider how many are my foes or my enemies and with what violent hatred they hate me this was a man who had his life in danger very often he had very good reason to pray and cry out to god lord don't disappoint me in my greatest time of need and secondly and perhaps more profoundly david was surrounded by enemies firstly and secondly he was sin conscious He was sin conscious, surrounded by enemies on all sides, and also he was conscious on the enemy that he had working on the inside. Notice with me this great theme that runs throughout this great psalm. Verse 11, verse 7, and verse number 18. Excuse me, verse 7, verse 11. And verse 18, remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Verse number 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt for it is great. And notice with me also the 18th verse, consider my affliction, my trouble and forgive all my sins. David is sin conscious. David knows his faults, his shortcomings, his failures. And David is concerned that not only his outward enemies are going to overtake him and destroy him, but his greatest enemy is his inward enemy, his flesh. Remember, we have three great enemies in this life, don't we? The world, the flesh, and the devil. So David has uh, a shameless trust in God. David is seeking to have a shameless kind of trust in God, a trust and confidence in God that's free of disappointment. But David knows that he's surrounded by enemies without, and he has a great enemy within. And he is concerned that God will let him down, that his enemies are going to overtake him. And it's a serious concern. It's a serious concern in the foolishness of our youth. We often think that we are invincible. And some of our Christian literature doesn't help that. Did you know that? Uh, I can remember getting involved in the victorious life, the deeper life sort of uh, teaching and movement early on in my life. And boy, I thought that nothing was going to, you know, God had defeated all my enemies. And uh, even so, God will bruise the head of the serpent under my feet shortly, Romans 16, even so come quickly, Lord Jesus. And I just thought that, boy, I was uh, standing on the mountaintop all the time and and, uh, everything was all good and I was invincible in Christ. And sometimes we have what the theologians call an overrealized eschatology. That's just a fancy word. Don't let those big fancy words uh, scare you. What overrealized means is that sometimes we overestimate the kingdom of God. The eschatology means the end of days. And while our enemy is a defeated foe in the larger picture of things, he still has great. Liberty from God and great power over the people of this world. You remember what what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He talks about the unredeemed, the unbeliever being controlled by the prince of the power of the air. And the idea is, is that even though the people who are unsaved are alive, they're dead on the inside. It's kind of like a dead man walking The image in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul gives is like a zombie. They're dead, but they're walking around. And this is the way that things are. And our enemies are great. The older I get, the more I respect my great enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The more that they make me cry out to God and ask God for help. A healthy fear... David was seriously concerned that his enemies may prove to be too strong for him. Did David have a good reason to believe that? Well, absolutely. Do you remember what happened with him and Bathsheba and Uriah? David had sinned against the Lord and against the people of Israel grievously and done horrible things. And he knew himself. He knew what he was capable of. He knew the indwelling sin and the power that the flesh had over him when he sinned against God, Uriah, and Bathsheba, and the people of Israel. He's concerned that that's going to happen again, and that keeps him going back to God crying out for deliverance and for salvation. Are you concerned that your great enemies may prevail over you? Are you like David in fearing that your great enemies will pull you down to their level and make you fall away from God? Do you feel like God will remember all your past sins and in the end, he will be unwilling to save you and help you? And if all this was the case, then we truly would be abandoned by God and we would be disappointed and put to shame. But we have a staggering hope, don't we? Notice the third verse of Psalm 25. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. None who hope in you. No one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. I believe the NIV translates. I want to read you a powerful verse, and I want you to listen closely and catch it. Romans 5 and verse 5. He said, Paul said, Hope does not put us to shame. He said, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Dear brothers and sisters, dear Christian in Christ, if you're here today feeling like your enemies and your sins are too much and that God will disappoint you and let you down or that he has, you can take heart and knowing that God wants to teach us how to hope in him and him alone. And he will give us what we need to persevere until the end it's not us who will be put to shame in verse 3 they shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous isn't that wonderful say lord i'm afraid that you're going to disappoint me i'm afraid that i'm going to be put to shame and god says no let me turn the tables on your enemies ultimately god says the enemies will be put to shame the world the flesh and the devil At the end of days, when Christ returns to the earth in power and glory and makes all things right, and the kingdom of God wherein dwells righteousness and peace in the new Jerusalem forevermore, that day our great enemies will finally and fully be put to shame. And in a very real way, they are being shamed at this very time. Secondly, the lesson on teachability. It's a concerted effort. It's a companionship encouraged. It's a character revealed. A concerted effort. It's not just pie in the sky, by and by. It's not just mechanical, magical. God doesn't save us and then snap His fingers over us and transform us into everything that we need to be. Instead, God calls upon us to walk in the path of righteousness God calls us to take up the path of the righteous in Psalm number one. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on you, Lord, in verse number 21. May integrity and uprightness preserve me for I wait on you. Perseverance comes through genuine and authentic devotion to God. It's not mechanical, nor is it magical. It is something that requires responsible learning, obedience, faithfulness to God, trust in Him, and a deep reverence on our part. It's a concerted effort. You have to be moving down the path. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews that if we turn back, we turn back to destruction. He said, don't drift. Do not drift in the Christian life. I like what were great uh, missionary and evangelist years ago, Mr. Paris Reedhead said, he said, only dead fish float downstream. Only dead fish float downstream. The Christian life is not a life of floating. It's not a life of drifting. It's a life with purpose. It's a life with passion. It's a life of learning. It's a life of moving forward and seeking to move yourself forward. And when you find yourself becoming stagnant, Crying out to God. Don't be a Dead Sea Christian. You know what a Dead Sea Christian is? In the Middle East, the Dead Sea is a great and vast lake, a giant sea filled with salt. And the reason why nothing can grow and nothing can live in the Dead Sea is because water flows into the Dead Sea, but it never flows out. Don't be the kind of Christian where the truth on Sunday and Bible studies, where it flows into you, but it doesn't do anything. The truth of God, the Word of God, the Spirit of God needs to be flowing in us, through us, out of us, blessing others. We need to be involved in the work of God. It's very, very important. It's a concerted effort. Prayer, fasting, meditating, Scripture study. All these things are vital, but it's a companionship encouraged. Psalm 25 is connected to the first Psalm. Let me read you a a lengthy quote from the great Bible commentator of yesteryear, Mr. P.C. Craigie. Quote, the prayer of Psalm 25 complements the wisdom of Psalm 1. Taken alone, the dispassionate wisdom of Psalm 1 could be misleading. It might be taken to imply that the essence of life was simply choosing the right road. Once the choice had been made, all would be well. But in Psalm 25, the prayer is that of a person who has made the choice presented in Psalm 1 and is walking the road of the righteous. But the dispassionate wisdom has been transformed into a passionate petition. For the right road is not an easy one to walk upon. It is lined with enemies who would like nothing better than to put the walker to shame. And the traveler on the road is also plagued with internal doubts as he calls to mind previous wanderings from the path and former sins. The essence of the road of the righteous is this. It is a road too difficult to walk without the, the, the companionship, excuse me, and friendship of God, end quote. I want to show you one of the theme verses, one of the most powerful verses in Psalm 25. Can I do that? Look at Psalm 25 and verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. How am I going to walk the path of the righteous, the path of the faithful? I need to have the friendship of God the friendship of God. He desires to be my companion and to walk with me the entire way. Aren't you glad that God doesn't save you and then open the door and kick you out and say, good luck, bub. I'll see you at the end of the road. That's not how God is. God takes you by the hand. And we need to be making a concerted effort to be discipled by the Lord. That doesn't necessarily mean that I can spout off all the great authors of antiquity and I have all this scripture memorized. It just means that I love God and I want him to be my friend and companion along this weary pilgrim's road. It's vital that we have the friendship of God. If you do not have the friendship of God in a relational kind of way, you will perish along the path of the righteous. Your enemies will overcome you. Your indwelling sin will have the final word. You need the companionship and the friendship of God, Psalm, 4, Psalm 25 and verse 14. It's a character revealed. Here are at least 10 things David said he learned about the character of God while enrolled in the school of Christian living. Number one, verse three, God is faithful because no one whose hope is in you will ever be put to shame. God is faithful, David said. This is something that God taught him about himself. Secondly, God is characterized by truths because his paths are paths of truth, verses four and five. God is his Savior in verse 5 and gives him salvation. Number 4, God is merciful and loving and has been from old in verse number 6. Number 5, God is good and upright. That has to do with God's mercy and his justice in verse 8. Again, God is loving and faithful in all his ways in verse number 10. God is forgiving in verse number 11. Number eight, God is open with his people and freely confides in them. He desires to be our friend in verse number 14. Number nine, God is gracious in verse number 16. And number 10, God is powerful to rescue his people. Therefore, he is one in whom they can take refuge. Psalm 25 verses 15 and 20. Our life is filled with being instructed by God. When was the last time that you prayed that God would teach you? God would instruct you. God would give you what you need in order to walk the path of the righteous or the faithful. Thirdly, the lesson on mercy and justice. A dile- there is a dilemma answered and there is a deleted memory. There is a dilemma answered and there's a deleted memory. Here's the dilemma. You may not know it or not, but it's a profound one. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. Verse uh, number 8 of Psalm 25. The words good and upright in our English Bible are just another way of saying God is both merciful and just. I want to stop here for a minute and tell you something. The reason why the Bible does not just continually use the same words over and over again, the translators switch it up. The reason why they do that is for literary purposes. If you keep saying the same thing over and over and over again and using the same words, it becomes seemingly redundant. And so Bible translators and translating committees very often will... Um, will. Uh what's the word they will sort of give different words that say the same thing it's helpful for you to understand that because you keep coming back to same concepts but there's different words and different and words mean things but the translators of the english versions use different words to switch it up and help us to have a literary flow to the bible the words good and upright are basically mercy and justice This is a significant combination because here is a powerful truth. Mercy and justice. Here they are. God desires to act toward humanity in a merciful and loving way. But God is just. And you have a problem on your hands. Exodus 23 and verse 7, which is the giving of the law, by the way. Exodus 23 and verse 7. He said, Keep thee from a false matter and the innocent and righteous slay not. For I will not justify the wicked, God says. God said, I will not justify the wicked. But in Romans, he said, Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. And so in the New Testament, the Bible says that God justifies sinners. In the Old Testament, God says that he can't justify sinners. Which is it? Well... If you're the heretic Marcion in the second century of the church, the Gnostic heretic, you say that the God of the Old Testament is a different God than the God of the New Testament. But that's not what we believe. We believe it's one God revealed in three persons. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. How can God, who is characterized by justice, how can he instruct sinners? This is a paradox. It's a conundrum. Well, the answer is found in Christ. God answers the dilemma. God cannot just justify the wicked. But yet he desires to act towards sinful creatures in a loving and merciful disposition. The only adequate answer to this dilemma is Jesus Christ, who satisfies the justice of God by bearing our punishment in our place on the cross. His death satisfies the justice of God completely, allowing God to forget about our sins and thus reach out to us and save us graciously. You have a you have a dilemma answered. It's a divine dilemma. It's an important dilemma. But you also have a deleted memory. I have a story I want to read you here. Harry Ironside, great pastor of Moody Church of Yesteryear, tells of a visiting, Harry Ironside, excuse me, tells of visiting a very old Christian. The man was about 90 years old and had lived a godly life. However, in his last days, he sent for Ironside because, as he expressed it, Everything seems so dark. Whatever do you mean, asked Ironside. You have known the Lord for nearly 70 years. You have lived for him a very long, long time. You have helped others. Whatever do you mean, dark? The man replied, In my illness, since I have been lying here so weak, my memory keeps bringing up the sins of my youth, and I cannot get them out of my mind. They keep crowding in upon me, and I cannot help but thinking of them, they make me feel miserable and wretched. Ironside turned to this psalm, Psalm 25, and read the verse in which David prays, Remember not the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your love, remember me, for you are good, O Lord, verse 7 of Psalm 25. After Ironside had read the words, he said, When you, come, when you came to God 70 years ago, you confessed your sin and you put your trust in Jesus Christ. Do you remember what happened then? The old man couldn't remember, but Ironside said, Don't you remember that when you confessed your sin, God said, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. If God has forgotten them, why should you think about them? The man relaxed and replied, I am an old fool remembering what God has forgotten. I am an old fool Remembering what God has forgotten. He found peace because he had been instructed in the nature of God and God's ways. You know what we are sometimes, folks? We're just a bunch of old fools remembering what God says he has forgotten. We need to forget about the things in our past, the sins of our youth, like what David prayed, and ask God to help us to believe that our sins are gone completely forevermore. Finally, the lesson on receiving God's blessings. There are one, two, three, four heart's attitudes necessary to receive the blessing of God. Now I want to show you something that's important. Look at Psalm 24. Verse 5, He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of His salvation, such is the generation of those who seek Him who seek the face of the God of Jacob Silah. This is important because while the 24th psalm does not go into detail about the blessings of God, what is the blessings of God? The blessing of God is walking the path of the righteous in a victorious way. Walking the path, persevering to the end persevering to the end there are at least four hearts attitudes necessary for us to receive the blessing of perseverance from God number one in verse number nine of Psalm 25 he leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble in his way God instructs sinners in his ways because God is good and upright but that implies that sinners know and understand themselves to be sinners and that they come before God humbly. He guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. There is no promise that God will teach, guide, lead, and bless those who are prideful and arrogant of heart. Only those who humble themselves in the dust before God, those are the ones who walk the path of the righteous and persevere unto the end. Secondly, obedience. I actually, in my original notes, I said, uh, there are four classes that you must take. <laughs> Intro to humility. Obedience 101. Verse number 10. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his commandments. One reason why many of us do not learn much about God or God's ways or we're not successful walking the path of the righteous is because we're not obedient. Be careful with unclenched truth. Unclenched truth is truth that flows in one ear and out the other. It's as James says, um, how do I say it? Uh, Oh, without works, it's impossible impossible to please God. How's that go? In James, he says, Boy, that was a complete, I deleted my own memory. What does the verse, come on, somebody help me. I need I'm this is call a friend. Oh, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Amen. I didn't need to call a friend. Folks, we need to be obedient before the Lord and need to be putting God first. Thirdly, reverence Be careful with this, folks, don't ever say that God is the man upstairs, the big guy in the sky. Jesus is not your co-pilot. He's the Lord. God desires to be our friend, yes, and he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. That's all true. But there is a reverence and an awe that's to pervade our Christian lives. A reverence, a fear. Notice what he said in verse number 12. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. God is holy. God is awesome. God is incredible. And verse 12 reminds us that reverence is is necessary if we are to know and be successful in our walk with God. Finally, an expectation. God actually wants us to look to Him with an expectant hope. One of my favorite verses in this psalm, right along with all the other ones, is Psalm 15. He said, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for He will pluck my feet out of the net. Your eyes are to ever be looking toward the Lord in expectant faith and hope. It's not just an abstract kind of hope. It's not just a checklist kind of hope. Well, I'm supposed to, I should be hopeful. Hopeful. Check, but it's a daily looking to the Lord in prayer, in Bible study, in meditation. One of the things that has been a great blessing to me in my life is meditation. That's not some weird thing. The Bible said in Psalm 1, Blesses the man who meditates on the law of God day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. Whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. And meditating on God, not just just quoting verses, not just writing out verses or writing sermons, but actually thinking about the Lord and how wonderful the Lord is, meditating on Him. In conclusion, as we learn from the master teacher regarding the way to live the Christian life, let us take up the final words of David. Notice the 22nd verse. In my Bible, it says, Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, but... You can just put your name there. Redeem Joel, O God, out of all his troubles. Write your name right there. Redeem your own self. It's a great prayer. And this is the end to which we long. Perseverance until the end. You say, I don't know that perseverance is a big deal. Well, Jesus said only those who persevere to the end shall be saved. There's a definite striving and moving forward in the Christian life. I hope it could be said of me that I know more of God and am closer to God today than I've ever been in my life. And I pray that that could be said of you as well. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here. Lord, we thank you for the Christian life from A to Z, walking the path of the righteous, the path of the faithful. And Lord, help us to be involved and just draw close to you in the friendship of God, the friendship of God. We ask it all in faith and in Jesus' name. Amen.